The following podcast is sponsor content from Umqua Bank. You know, I said, you know, your choice is to hold on to the $100 or, you know, to, to feed the kids this weekend. I, I think the, the choice has to be to feed the kids. Welcome to Open Account, where we get honest about making, losing, and living with money. I'm Sujin Park. I was excited when Umqua Bank approached me. They're a community bank, and they wanted to have a different conversation about our relationship to money. They believe that talking about money is essential to having a healthier relationship with it and ultimately with one another. Together, we've created this podcast to focus not on generic financial tips or economic advice, but on the realities of life and money and how honest conversations about both can help us reach our potential. Our guest today, Neil Gabler, has been in the press a lot lately. He wrote a recent Atlantic article titled The Secret Shame of Middle-Class Americans. In it, Neil exposes the personal and systemic factors leading to his very current financial problem. The article is unprecedented, vulnerable, and provocative. It's impossible to overstate the response. Dozens of reaction pieces, thousands of comments on social media, nearly a quarter million shares— Neil really hit a nerve. He's an award-winning journalist with four decades of published work, the author of several books, a respected film critic and professor. Neil is like a lot of people we call our peers, our friends, really our mentors, a hard worker with an extensive and impressive resume. But he's also one of the 47% of Americans that, according to a 2013 Federal Reserve study, are unable to come up with $400 in cash in an emergency. While the Atlantic article details the personal decisions and financial illiteracy that led he and his family to a teetering point, it also begs the question, what is an American middle class if it can't access the resources to handle minor bumps in the road? Neil's confession is shocking and important, but what he wrote about how we got there is what sucker-punched me. His article exemplifies why we make this podcast, money, shame, confusion, and why we'd rather talk about our bedroom issues and our financial issues. It's the exact reason why we're here, to dismantle the mystery and fear around money through honesty and humor. Sitting with Neil face-to-face, with a man who many would look up to, he's an incredibly accomplished professional and devoted father who feels like he's just barely keeping his head above water. In being brutally honest and open about his financial frailty, he would say, out of all the things he's written over the years, it's been the one he's most proud of. So here's Neil Gabler in his own words. Neil, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I know your phone must be ringing off the hook since this (laughs) article came out. This article got a greater response than anything I've ever written. People were actually seeking out my email. You know, it's not publicly available. And write me their stories. And and perhaps the best of them in some ways was the most succinct of them. It was from a fellow who just said, I'm a broadcaster in Iowa. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now I know I am not alone. And that's precisely why I wrote this piece. Not because I wanted to out myself or humiliate myself, both of which I did, but uh, <laughs> because I wanted to give some solace to people who were in a similar predicament but didn't know that there were others in that same leaky boat with them. I'm in that leaky boat. I drilled a lot of holes in the bottom of that boat, and I'm, I'm with them, and I think they, they appreciated 
that I shared this, and I appreciated that they shared their stories with me. Sitting down with a person who does this for a living. Mm-hmm. And writing, as any writer will tell you, is about as unstable a profession as there can possibly be. And continues, and I continues mean, to continues get continues worse. To worse. <laughs> as bad as I it mean, was when I started. We don't want to <laughs> discourage any young people. I often say, say to my students, you know, writing is not a profession, it's an addiction. <laughs> if you have the addiction, then you have to do it, you have no choice. But if you think of it as a profession, run out of the room yes. and do something yeah. else. But I have the addiction. Your work and your day is primarily just you in front of, you know, your computer. You know, writing is an extremely solitary profession. And my writing particularly, I never write about myself. You know, I I don't think I'm all that interesting to be perfectly frank. This was one of the rare times, this piece for Atlantic was one of the rare times that I ever wrote about myself. And like you said, the, the response has been so overwhelmingly personal. Well, I call it financial impotence. And yeah. I call it financial impotence, this this notion of not having enough money, because it has the same characteristics as sexual impotence. And men, believe me, will never talk about sexual impotence, no matter how close you are to, to someone. I've never had that conversation with any, any friend who's ever said to me, oh, by the way, Neil. But financial impotence, in some ways, is even a greater barrier. And, and I broke that that omerta, so to speak. I had people walk up to me in the grocery store, several people coming up to me and saying, gosh, let me tell you my story. People are so pent up with a sense of financial impotence that they're dying to get it out. For those that are listening that haven't read the article, give me kind of the career path and then some of the decisions um, that led you here to this financially tricky place. Let me just start by saying that if you were to look at me, or to look at my resume, or to look at my tax return, you wouldn't think that I would be in financial difficulty, and and yet I am. One of the triggers for this piece was a survey by the Federal Reserve, which asked if you had a $400 emergency, could you afford that emergency? 47% of the respondents, which are 47% of Americans, did not have $400 to meet an emergency without selling something or borrowing money. Now, it was astonishing only because I didn't realize so many people were in the same predicament that I was in. So that's the setup of where I'm coming from. But how I got there was I made decisions without thinking of financial consequences because we don't usually live that way. When you read the statistic about the 47% of Americans couldn't cover that $400, you could have easily interviewed one of those Americans, but you instead decided to write about yourself. Why? Because I thought I had to put my own face on it. I thought it would be very clinical for me to go and find one of those people and to discuss their situation. But it would also be dishonest because I'm in that situation. I'm pretending in a way that I'm not. This is about me. I mean, this is my situation. I could have written that article, but I don't think it would have had anywhere near the impact. For us here with this podcast— I mean, that's why this whole team wanted to do this project is because once you start to tell your deepest, darkest secrets, then everybody kind of comes into the light. And in that collective light, I think there's a lot of healing and information and there's so much more there than it is in isolation on your own. Actually, I said the trigger for the article was that survey that showed that 47 percent of Americans couldn't afford $400. But the real final push was when I was at my grocery store talking to my friend, my butcher, Brian. One of the only people who ever opened up to me about his financial difficulties, we would always say, hey, how are you doing? And say, eh, not so good. He'd ask me how I was doing. Eh, you know, I'm 
we would have that sort of exchange. And I remember one day he said, if anybody tells you that they're doing well, that they're just sailing through, they're lying. And that may not be entirely true, but there's a lot of truth in it. What is your first memory of money? My father, ironically, given my financial situation, was an accountant. And I think in some ways he was an accountant because he was a Depression kid, grew up very poor. So his life was very much directed toward overcoming his childhood. We heard a lot about money in my house. My father talked a lot about it. In what sense? Like, What was the emotion or the content of it? I want to know what it felt like in your house. Well, I'll tell you, there were were several dimensions to it. One was he was very proud of how much money he was making. He wasn't a wealthy, wealthy man, but he was doing well. For somebody who didn't have a college degree, in fact, he later went back in his 60s and got his college degree by going to school at night, which is a very impressive feat and at, at the time did not impress me anywhere near enough as it should have done. But, you know, so he would boast about how much money he made, uh, things which on a young kid made absolutely no impression. And as I got older and, you know, I was of the Vietnam, you know, counterculture generation, only made a negative impression on me. So there was that. But he was also at the same time, uh, you know, extremely frugal. We lived in a very modest house. He drove modest cars. We didn't travel. We didn't do any of the things that were commensurate with the kind of income he was making. So we got this kind of double message, which was, you know, you work hard and you make as much money as you possibly can, but you don't spend any money. And you see how well I learned that lesson. And I I know psychologically, I've lived my financial life probably in rebellion (laughs) against my father. Money meant very little to me. You know, I, I went to law school, much to my parents' joy. And after two years, I realized I never wanted to practice law. And so the joy of my parents was immediately dashed. But it was because I really didn't care about money. I really wanted to follow my bliss. I really wanted to do the things that would make my life satisfying in the fullest sense. And I was never thinking about money when I made those decisions. And I certainly didn't want my life Mm -hmm. to be driven by money. I'd seen my father's life driven that way. And although, again, in retrospect, I understand fully why he did that, I didn't want to live looking for that kind of financial reward. I wanted to live with the emotional, psychological, and even moral reward of doing the kind of work I do, which is, you know, writing. I dropped out of law school after two years and pursued a writing career. That's a that's choice. A, that's a yeah, choice. Absolutely. I chose to live in New York because I wanted to be near the, the intellectual pulse and the writing pulse of the country. That was a choice. It's expensive to live in New York. I could have lived in some rural area somewhere, but I wouldn't have had the same energy or the same resources, to be frank. I chose to get married. I mean, that's a choice. I chose to have children. And I have two wonderful daughters who are the light of my life, and I love them more than anything in the world. But that's a choice. And I chose to send them to private school. Um, You know, I do not have the keeping up with the Joneses syndrome. But I do have the wanting my children to keep up with the Joneses children's syndrome. It only heightens when you have kids. Before that, I was sort of like, blasé, blasé, you know, what will be will be. And then you look at your kid and you're like, I got to get braces for him. Look at his front tooth is a little funky. That haircut, we got to go to that expensive haircut place and get him a cool haircut. So you start to make choices. And you make choices. And a lot of the letters and emails and things I got are people who were saying, we were okay until... 
until we sent our kids to college and that wiped us out. Well, guess what? It wiped me out too. And I didn't even pay the full freight for my children's education because my parents, that father who was so focused on money, you know, picked up a lot of the money, uh, the tuition and whatever for, for my children. But they went to good schools and, and I'm happy they did. And, you know, you don't have to go to a brand-name school or whatever to be successful. Obviously not. But you do want to give your kids every possible advantage. I did as a parent. Was it that moment when you had to send the kids to school that you were like, wow, now I've crossed over this line that I've been very close to my whole life as a writer, but this is what put you over the edge? When I sent the kids to school, that was really the the knockout blow. Now, there were other things other considerations. When we moved, I lived in a co-op and the other members of the co-op for whatever reason, and it was their own reason, which they never shared with me, would not allow me to sell that co-op when I had buyers come. And I had to carry that house and pay a rent. And then ultimately I was able to buy my house. So for a while I was carrying both the mortgage of my co-op and the mortgage. These things kill you. We all live in an ongoing series of calamities. I don't know of any individual who doesn't have a series of calamities. Life doesn't operate where you make a certain amount of money, you pay your bills, you move on from day to day to day. No, what happens is that you make your money, you pay your bills, and then a new bill comes up that is completely unexpected. You need your roof to be repaired. Or I have two dogs and one of my dogs needs veterinary care. Or you need a new car. I can't afford a new car, but I I have a 1997 Toyota Avalon, and it needed a serious repair very recently. And these things, which happen on a daily basis, these are the emergencies that wipe us out. Can you speak of a moment specifically over your life where you still feel like, man, that was really tough? Years and years and years ago. My wife was working at the time, and we had a a child care person to, to whom we were very close. And we got to the end of the week. And the decision had to be made, do, do we pay her, which would have cleaned us out completely, or do we ask her, can she wait a week? And I felt, frankly, I couldn't do that to her because she was in the same situation. So we paid her, and we had no money. And I remember this vividly because my wife, maybe two years earlier, had found a $100 bill on the street. And she said, this is my lucky $100 bill. I'm never going to spend this $100 bill. And we got to that weekend, and we paid the childcare person. And we had no money, and we had the two children who were young then. And I said, you know, we're going to have to spend that $100. We can't get through the weekend. And we had a, a, a big argument about it. You know, I said, you know, your choice is to hold on to the $100 or, you know, to, to feed the kids this weekend. I, I think the, the choice has to be to feed the kids. And she finally agreed and gave me the $100. And I went out and bought food and we made it, you know, through the week. And I got paid and she got paid. And, you know, so we, we survived those four or five days or whatever it was. But to this day, my wife doesn't let me forget about my taking her lucky $100. It's so hard to describe to someone who hasn't lived paycheck to paycheck And you go to the, even to this day, you go to the mailbox every day and you hope that that check for the piece you wrote four months ago is going to be there. And you dun the people for whom you wrote the article. Oh, yeah, it's being processed. It's an accounts payable or whatever. And they don't know. And you can't say because you don't want to look desperate. You don't want to say, look, I need that money now. I wrote the article four months ago. It's another aspect of financial impotence that you can't express your desperation, but you're desperate. 
Title this article, My Secret Shame. When you're in that boat alone, mm-hmm. it does feel shameful, doesn't it? Oh, it is. Absolutely. You don't want to get up in the morning because you, you feel the sense of shame. You can't sleep at night because money worries keep you awake in the middle of the night. You will bolt out uh, upright in bed and think of something. You don't want to go to the mailbox because you know there's going to be bills, but you're not sure there's going to be a paycheck. You don't want to answer the phone because there are times when you're worried that there's, it's going to be somebody dunning you. You don't want to look at your bank account because if you've been in my situation, I've had my bank account levied. And I'm always afraid, to this day I'm afraid, of going to my bank account and seeing whether I might see red there because someone's taken my money. You argue with your wife. Everyone who is in a financial situation argues with his or her spouse. Many people argue with their children or they lose the respect of their children. I fortunately was not in that case, but I have friends who since I've written this article have opened up to me and their children turn on them, not because they're bad kids, but because they say, well, you don't have the money that I need to do such and such a thing. You recede from the world because you don't want to deal with people. You don't want to socialize because you have this deep, dark secret, which is absolutely, you know, hollows you out. And you said it's interesting, too, that there were times that you hadn't spoken to your wife about how close you were to that. I couldn't tell her. When we were in deep financial straits, and we still are, I'm not saying we're out of this, my feeling was, okay, now, do I tell her when she can't do anything about it? I'm the only one who can even remotely do anything about it, and I'm doing everything I can. Or do I protect her? So I I took a very protective kind of view. Does she now, in hindsight, appreciate that? Absolutely does not appreciate it, and she is incensed at me. I mean, I will be frank about it. She is incensed that I hid these things from her. You know, my intentions were good, but she may very well be right. So I'm curious now, with this out in the open, did you tell her you were writing this article, and what's that dynamic like? That's a great question. She knew I was writing the article. I told her. I said, I'm going to open up. I told my wife I'm writing this piece. But I also told her, I said, I don't want you to read the piece. I don't think I could write it in quite the same way if I knew you were going to be reading it. So promise me that you won't. And she made that promise. And to the best of my knowledge, she has not read the piece. Now, I asked my children to make the same promise. And... They did not keep the promise. <laughs> it was like, there's no way. They did. No, kids, <laughs> kids don't do that. The second most gratifying thing about writing the piece, the first I was getting the kind of response I got from people who were in my, my predicament. But the second most gratifying thing was getting a call from my younger daughter who was crying and said, you know, Dad, this is the best thing you've ever written and the most important thing you've ever written. That made me feel so good because even after writing the piece and even after it was published, I had doubts about whether I should have done this. I, you know, I'm a very private person, extremely private person, and I wasn't sure I should have opened myself up this way. But when my daughter told me that, I've never had a doubt since that phone call. Has it been a cathartic experience for you, or has it been a painful experience? Both painful and cathartic. I mean, it was painful to write the piece, and it's still painful now. There's been a certain catharsis in it in the sense that you know, it has connected me to this very, very large community of people who, you know, range from, you know, factory workers and salesmen and academics and writers who wrote me and said, you have told my story. So there's been that catharsis. But when it comes to money, frankly, you can never be fully purged. 
I think that can only happen if the national mindset changes. I was taught to believe if you work hard, you will be successful. If you are not successful, it is because you didn't work hard enough. That's how we think of our lives. By that standard, I am a failure. I don't think I'm a failure in other ways. Am I a failure in terms of my work? Well, you can't work harder than I do. But I'm a failure by the way that most people in this country are measured. Mm. Should we measure people differently? You know, I, it's self-serving for me to say, yes, we ought to measure people differently as a failure by, that, by the financial standard. Of course, I think we ought to be measured differently. But, you know, it's shameful to know that you failed no matter how hard you work. We need more than simply financial education. We need to reorient ourselves mentally in terms of what the American dream is and how we fit into it. And we have to adjust ourselves to understand that finances are not everything in life. That would go a long way towards changing this winner and loser mentality. We have to allow people to feel that sense of success so they won't feel the sense of shame. And is that how you would redefine this definition of the American dream? Absolutely, I would. And I think it would make a tremendous difference. Obviously, psychologically, it would make all the difference in the world. But I think it would also make a big difference financially. If people understood that, you know, having all those things that I was told I was supposed to have in order to be successful really is not a measure of success. And I can't have them anyway. Yeah, that would make a big difference. It would have made a big difference, I think, in my life. That is how someone would define keeping up with the Joneses. We are a national keeping up with the Joneses, and we can't do it. I can't do it, and those who are doing it may have to make tremendous sacrifices in terms of the other things that can make their lives successes. What has changed for you? What kinds of decisions do you feel that you're making differently financially to hopefully get you in a better place? Well, one thing I've done is, you know, I have no credit card. That was a decision that was made jointly by the credit card companies and by me. <laughs> I can't say that was completely on my uh, <laughs> own account. I, I buy nothing on credit mm. now, nothing. If I can't afford it, I don't buy it. I have a debit card. That's all I have. Any debt that I have, I'm paying down. It's not easy because that can cost a significant amount of money, and it means that there isn't money to spend not for extravagances but for – the day-to-day living expenses. So I don't have a cushion. And we live very, very frugally. We don't go out to eat, almost never. I was a film critic, but I seldom go to movies now. You look at every aspect of your life and you tighten it. If you could take back one financial decision that you made in your past that could have set you on a different trajectory perhaps today. What is that one decision you could take back? That's a very difficult question to answer. When I bought the co-op, I mean, that was a decision that I was at the mercy of other people, and I didn't think that through. I thought, you know, when the time comes, I'll sell this co-op. And I I think you always have to look at, at your financial decisions and say, are they contingent on other people, or are they only contingent on me? Buying a home is usually contingent on others. Then I think you you might want to think twice, three times, four times, or five times before you make that commitment. And in my case, you know, buying this little co-op in Brooklyn, I didn't think that 
They were going to force me to hold on to that for two years. We never set foot in that apartment. It was empty for two years. And I did it because I wasn't in control of the financial destiny of that apartment. The people in the co-op were. So that's another thing to always keep in mind. You know, if you make a decision, are you the one who controls the decision? What would you tell your younger self then, knowing what you know now? I would say be cautious. Understand the consequences of your decisions. You, you have to understand the consequences of every decision you make. If you decide to be a writer, that's going to scale back your life than when you decided to be an attorney. You know, if you send your kids to private school, then it's kind of like, uh, you know, the federal budget where, you know, you, you, you spend money on one thing, but you have to cut on something else. So you just have to be aware at all times that every decision you make has reverberations. And you have to understand those reverberations and either you live with them or you don't. But that's what I would have told myself. My real problem was certainly decisions I made and the optimism I had in making them. You know, I mean, I, I lived within this kind of nimbus of optimism that no matter what I encountered, I would always overcome it. Well, optimism can be your worst enemy as well as your best friend. But the other side of this is that, you know, expenses grow. But our incomes have not. And that is not just on us. Mm. We have stagnant wages in this country. We have stagnant, even declining net worth in this country. That's part of something that's much larger than any single individual. And that's something that is way above my pay grade to be able to deal with. But it's something I deal with on a daily basis. All my life, from the time I was very small, my feeling was always that there is a moral dimension to life. And it's not the moralistic dimension to life that we often hear about. It's rather churchy or whatever. For me, the moral dimension of life is that you are committed to doing everything you do with a sense of excellence. That is the morality of writing, that you try and write as excellently as you possibly can, or of teaching, or of child-rearing, or of friendship, of anything you do. And I do try and live as best I can with all of the errors that I make, you know, a value-driven life. And that is defining values as trying to give everything you do, everything you've got. You know, we could have done things differently, but if we'd done things differently, we wouldn't be who we are. We are the sum of the choices we make. Even the bad choices we make. I made a lot of bad choices. But on the other end, I am who I am. And I'm proud of my work. And I'm proud of my family. And those are also the product of choices, including financial choices, that I made. But I also think that this could be an opportunity for all of us to look at what we touched upon here, which is the untying of self-worth to our economic situations, the things that we have, the things that we own. I couldn't agree with you more. Our own personal salvation is to say, I'm not going to judge myself or let other people judge me by my economic worth. We can't obviously control other people judge us, but life's too short to worry about those things. We can't control those things, but we can control how we feel about ourselves. And we work toward that to say, my life has been a success, even if my bank account doesn't indicate it. Yeah. 
That's what it is. My husband and I are living in a house that we really can't afford. Dipping into our savings to send our kids to private schools, living just beyond our means, like everyone else on our block, making small choices every day because we may be too proud or afraid to make different ones. The thing about failure or perceived failure is that it's an incredibly isolating experience. Nobody wants to admit it and nobody wants to be around it. By making this conversation public, yes, we can make different choices, but it's just as important that there is humanity, vulnerability, and hope about how to make it better. Our belief in making open account is that the learning lies in connection. You can't really get it until someone shares first, says, this is me. And everyone finally gets to nod along, and yes, start to open up. So that's it for this episode of Open Account. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to catch up on past episodes and stay tuned for a lot more. Umqua Bank's vision to build a healthier relationship with money for everyone, you know, no matter how much or how little you have, it inspires them to have these kinds of conversations every day. Learn more about their team and their approach to community banking at madetogrow.com. 